0: On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about the verdicts, rules that we should be putting in place right now, the copycat lawsuits, whether NAR should settle or appeal. Great show, tune in everyone. You talk about it privately, we talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome again to the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, James Twiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, a.k.a. Crazy Uncle Keith. Yes, sir. We have a repeat guest. Tell everybody about one. the fun conversation we just yeah. had, <laughs> had and
1: Zorn on again. He is the vice president and general counsel for Sierra CRM- CRMLS. We had him on previously on episode 27 where we were talking about uh, the settlements when they first dropped. This time we dig in on the verdict, now that we have one, sort of what the next steps are, copycat lawsuits, some pontification on where it all will go, and some of the long tail effects we hope we can avoid.
0: And some rules that he thinks we should be putting in place, which I think was a good part of the conversation. So Correct,
1: correct. So uh, it's good to be informed, put it in your ears, kids. Ed is literally the smartest person, James and I know, on this topic, and we were thankful
0: to have him on again. Tune in. Ed, welcome back to the show, our first repeat uh, guest back on the pod. You have the honors of that. At this uh, point,
1: we should just have him recurring monthly until all this is done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure
2: your listeners would appreciate that. Really? But I, do, yeah. I do appreciate the opportunity to come back and, and share some thoughts and maybe answer some questions uh, that you guys have been getting. Well, uh, if we do it so, monthly,
0: yeah. he'll bill us. So, yeah, never mind. Uh, that was a terrible yeah, idea. That was a terrible idea, Keith. I take it uh, back.
2: we all on retainer. So
0: uh, real quick, and we'll do this fast because we want to dive into a lot of stuff regarding the lawsuits. Uh, So everybody knows Ed Zorn, Vice President General Counsel for CRMLS, the largest multiple listed service in the United States. Ed, real quick, just quick background on you, uh, and then we'll dive into all the juicy stuff. So,
2: Sure. Yeah, I've been with the California Regional MLS for about eight years. And prior to that, I represent a lot of local realtor associations, brokers, Uh, and developers. Um, As an attorney, I've also been a realtor for 20 years running my own uh, small real estate firm. I also helped manage a three office uh, franchisee um, across a couple of markets with a lot of commercial experience. And then prior to all that, I spent about 15 years as a plaintiff's trial attorney doing predominantly uh, real estate and construction defect litigation in Southern California. So...
0: So basically, Ed wears a lot of hats. And what makes him unique is this experience of not only obviously being a lawyer and, and involved in the industry, but also doing what everybody on this um, who listens to this pod does every day. All right. So we want to spend as much time as we can while we got you. Um, we had you on prior to the trial and uh, you are the digital, the, the lawyer Yoda of uh, figuring out exactly what was gonna happen because everything you said was gonna happen actually happened. Um, so verdict is in, everyone knows what the verdict is. I think let's just give just a quick 30 seconds on where we're at in this process. What happens next with injunctive relief, And then we'll have a million more questions after that. So just kind of set us up on where we are, what's likely going to happen next in this process, and then we'll talk about the copycat suits and other things as well. So sure.
2: So where we are, obviously, everyone knows that the the verdict has come in from the jury under some federal local rules that verdict gets turned into a judgment by the clerk of the court, Uh, not unusual. What the judge did recently is they vacated the judgment. And that's important because the judgment is the date that triggers a lot of other things like your time frame for appeals and things. So he vacated the the judgment and set a schedule for briefing for any post-trial motions. Now, if we fully anticipate NAR will bring a motion for a new trial to vacate the verdict. These are very normal motions that defendants bring. They're very rarely granted, so we'll see what kind of arguments that NAR can come up with and see if any of those are persuasive to the court. Um, But in all likelihood, he'll move forward with a judgment. Another motion that can happen in this period of time is going to be a potential injunction from the plaintiff. Now, he doesn't have to bring an injunction. They asked for it in the complaint, uh, but they did not certify a separate injunction class like they have in some other cases. Uh, but we do anticipate and the buzz in the industry is that he will bring some kind of motion for an injunction. And remember, what an injunction means is it's asking the court to issue some kind of order for someone to, to not do something or to do something. Uh, and we also know at this point that the plaintiff's attorney has, in fact, been in communication with the Department of Justice. And so we would expect some of the the vision or ideas of the Department of Justice maybe to also influence maybe some of the language of a new rule that we are all going to have to live by um, in the upcoming months in this injunction process. Uh, what is that, what after- does that look like?
0: <clears throat> what, is that, what do you think that, let's just stop there for a second. What do you think sure. that, injuncti- that injunction looks like? What do you think they're going to request? Your my,
2: best, my best estimate based on taking into account things that we know about what the DOJ's complaints have been in the past, some of their filings and no select. Um, I believe... That you're going to see an injunction that orders the National Association of Realtors to issue a rule that forbids MLSs from including a field in the MLS database that is a unilateral offer of compensation coming from the listing broker. In essence, that would decouple it.
1: At the moment, the judge I don't know if signed or they put some cool, uh, Game of Thrones, wax stamp on it, that would be rad too. But when that goes into effect, the changes start then,
2: correct? Correct. I would anticipate that if, if the court's going down that road, that NAR would bring in some kind of evidence to remind the judge that, Hey, this kind of change means we have to do things like change forms, mm-hmm. right? Listing agreement forms are going to have to change residential purchase agreement forms may need to change so as to accommodate the payment of commissions so that this can't just happen instantaneously. We're also going to have existing um, contracts that right. still have to go through their life. Active right? listing and, agreements and so I would assume that there would be some kind of period of time that the judge would build in for the changes to, to kind of take effect. And the the nuances of that change also matter, right? Mm-hmm. So, does the judge say just listing brokers are prohibited from, you know, offering compensation, or does that include sellers directly? Mm-hmm. Right? In other words, you can't have any field at all, or or is it only is it only listing brokers that are prohibitive? That's a nuance that can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also another nuance of something that's really important. Which is what about today, you know, for those of you out there that are actually, you know, in people's living rooms doing deals, how many of you are negotiating like a two one buy down on on the, on a loan right now? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. doing some other kind of buy down points to try to encourage the buyer? And this is very beneficial for buyers, by the way. Yeah. Or or other credits <laughs> for flooring or roof repairs or deck repairs. I, I list those things because those are all things I have personally handled yep. and included in offers that I have made. Right. So how does a seller using the multiple listing service still convey the willingness to offer some of those credits that are important in a transaction that would incentivize, again, the buyer directly, not the buyer's agent, Mm -hmm. but the buyer directly so that I, as a buyer's agent, know how to fashion that offer? In other words, what concessions are already packed in that list price that the seller picked? Right. There's a very real important Important opportunity that we don't want to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. and so I, I think, guys, that's some of the nuances that are going to have to go in front of the court for consideration in in what's going to happen on what does this order look like. When and one other is, big
1: point, let me, go let ahead, me just go ahead, put a bow no. on this real quick. Yep. So, no, one of, this this is the answer to the Nars going to appeal and this will be settled in five years, crowd, right? Like. It it, that's a theoretical possibility, of course, it's not a zero percent that that will happen, but it is also uh, not a zero percent. And I think all three of us think it's a much more likely percentage that if an injunction comes along that ends this whole nothing's going to change for years because NAR is going to appeal. Correct.
2: So, yes, I I would expect that NAR would request that the court stay the injunction. In other Mm -hmm. words, they'll ask the court, hey, let's not move forward with the injunction yet because we might win on appeal. Right. I personally don't think the judge would would issue such an order. And the reason is a, a couple of reasons for that. One, NAR lost. And they didn't like kind of lost <laughs> lose. They didn't kind of like barely no, lose. they lost back. No, <laughs> right? The
0: yeah.
2: jury was out for like an hour.
0: Uh, an hour and right. a half, come on. It's actually two and a half, but the point's the same. No, so, it's actually bad. an
2: hour, right? Because is it an hour? Yeah, is it really? But of, I've, been a, I've been a jury foreman before, Okay, so I've been a juror. It uh-huh. takes a solid half hour to figure month. out who's your foreman going to be, <laughs> what do I do with this stack of paper, how does this work? And then they asked for the damage request, right? They had a question to the judge. Hey, how do we figure out damages at an hour and 38 minutes?
0: You're making me want to drink, Ed, by the way. (laughs) Let's just
2: say it wasn't a close race, right? And I think the judge (laughs) may look at that, right? It Mm -hmm. it was an overwhelming win for the plaintiff. Uh, And as a result, I think the judge can say, hey, look, your chances of appeal may, while you may win on a technical you know, argument, and I think NAR could win on appeal, guys. I'm not. I sure. do think there's a path for them to win. Yep. But I don't know if a judge says we're going to wait four or five years mm-hmm. and let another two billion dollars of damages <laughs> occur in the meantime while we wait. Uh, if you're the judge, would you do that? Right. No. Or would and you protect I- the people who already won?
0: Well, and I, and I want to make sure we cover this because I've, you know, Keith and I have been very outwardly spoken about this needs to settle for a whole, the, the, also the pressure of these, you know, copycat suits. We'll get to that in a second. I just want to be clear. I've read that this injunctive relief has a schedule, right? It's, it's not, the decision won't be made for several months. Is that something completely different that I was reading about? So I'm clear on that.
2: Schedule that's different is the motions. So the judge has vacated the current, um, clerk's judgment, and he set a schedule of times for the different parties to file any post-verdict motions. Okay, One of those motions could be, and I want to stress, it's a could be. Again, the plaintiff can decide not to file a motion for an injunction, right? But there's an opportunity here for Uh, you know, NAR and the plaintiff to maybe get together. You talk about a settlement. I I think you're right, James. I think that's the the proper road that we should go down and realize you could have two different settlements. You could have one settlement that focuses on the rule, what's going to happen next for us in the industry. That could be Mm -hmm. one thing. And that can be Mm -hmm. separate and distinct from the appeal and the settlement and issues with regard to money.
0: Can I, I, I have, I'm just had this, I'm going to sound like probably an idiot even bringing this up because I'm not a lawyer, but isn't there an opportunity here for anywhere in Remax? Well, I guess let me ask this question differently. If they, if they ask for an injunction, is there a way to separate the two people that have already settled from any of those things or would it be, it applies to everybody regardless? I guess I'm trying to say, is there a, a move for anywhere in Remax to, uh, basically state things have to occur in order for us to stay with the settlement? Yeah, does that no. make sense what I'm asking? No. No.
2: When you go through the settlement agreements, the settlement agreements are all right. about money mm-hmm. and conduct that anywhere in REMAX have some influence or control over, mm-hmm. right? Okay. In terms of their franchise agreements, things, yeah. you know, how they do training, these kind of yeah. things. Yeah. They yeah. have zero power over what an NAR rule is going to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Right. And so Um,
2: those things are really
0: not connected now. So whatever happens applies to them too, though. So whatever the injunction, yeah. So they're they're in the same boat. If basically whatever applies to the whole industry or NER applies to everybody, regardless. Is that a minus the money portion and the the rules that they agreed to in the settlement, specific to transacting residential real estate? Correct.
2: Correct. Yeah. Yeah, There's not going to be one set of rules for REMAX and a completely different set of rules for. That's what I'm asking. I I don't see that happening now. That being said, anywhere in REMAX are still parties in the lawsuit. They still get to stand inside of the courtroom and they could still exert some kind of influence or opinions with regard to what the rule should be, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing stops them from exerting some arguments to advance a particular rule or oppose a certain rule that may impact them you know, in the case. So they still have okay. that standing that's different than others, but there will not be like a REMAX rule and a separate rule for others as an example. Okay.
0: All right. Now, this is an important one because I I, I, I want to make sure this is that we get this right for everyone to hear. So the judge has not decided the total damages amount yet. Has he applied the trouble damages or that has not been?
2: He has not done that yet. That will be part of a judgment. So what we're, okay. where we're at right now, is we have a verdict. From a jury, yeah, or
0: you know, one point
2: seven eight billion dollars, and then now what's going to happen is that verdict will be converted into a judgment from the court. But before he issues that judgment, the court is going to hear some motions from the various parties before he produces that judgment. Right. Okay. So, so that's which is kind where of he like,
0: can decide to do treble damages at the same time. Correct. Is that correct? Okay. Now, correct. so there's my question. One point seven eight billion dollars currently. Um, let's just use the bottom number. That's what we know we're there. In order to file the appeal, the defendants have to post the bond in order to cover that. Is that correct?
2: So some some misinformation swirling all around about this bond. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so remember what the judge's purpose for the bond is. The idea here is plaintiffs have won; they got an award for one point seven eight billion, right? So, on the one hand, the judge is going to weigh, and we lawyers and judges talk about weighing all the time, right? We want evidence. And that's what the judge is going to do here. So, on the one hand, protect the plaintiffs one point seven eight million or billion, excuse okay. me. We wish it was one point seven. On the other hand, the judge also has to take into account the reality that. Maybe the defendants will win on appeal. Hmm. So, you don't want to set the bond at such a number that you just bankrupt everybody and everybody loses by default anyway because mm-hmm. you set the bond at such a high number that there's no reason to even appeal, right? So, he's got to balance these two things. What people are confusing is in the code, you're entitled to an automatic stay uh, of the judgment execution of the judgment on appeal. If you post a bond in the full amount, meaning the judge mm-hmm. has no choice. Mm-hmm. If you post the full amount, plus lawyer fees, plus interest on that amount, the judge automatically has to issue the stay. On the flip side, you can ask the judge for a different number and and the judge can then say, hey, if you pay X dollars to the court, then that is enough for us to protect the plaintiff based on me judge weighing these issues and I will stay the proceedings if you put in and post this amount. So I think some people are confusing that the only way it gets stayed is if they post the full amount. That's not the case. The judge can lower that amount if he wants, but he doesn't have to.
0: But it's up to the judge to make that choice.
2: Yes, that will be the the court's weighing of those two interests, the plaintiff getting money to make sure people don't, you know, bleed the money away versus taking care of the defendants and making sure that there's still a reason they can appeal without you know trying to throw them into full bankruptcy.
0: Traditionally, what percentage have you seen that be when the judge makes a decision? It, that is it's truly scary. case by
2: case. That okay. that is, you know, there are actually a number of states around the country that have actually set a max. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of states that have like a, a, a fifty million or a hundred million max for a bond, kind of recognizing the fact that there's such a large number of money that you're basically, if you set the bond number too high, it's bankrupted. you've just ended the yeah. the company. There's, there really is no ability yeah. for appeal. Yes. Yeah.
0: Right. I mean, right. like there's no, am I off on this, but there is there is no way, at least for, and we don't know Warren Buffett certainly, but like, let's just hypothetically say they're not going to dump that kind of money in, that they're going to be able to post a bond that large, like they'd have to have a reduced amount in order to appeal. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah,
2: I, I, I don't have any thinking that the bond is going to be for each of these defenses is going to be, you know, totaling, you know, 1.8 billion. I don't think that's right. going to happen. Right. I think what a good judge is going to do is they're going to look at the cash, cash equivalents, maybe uh, equity in real estate, some discounted value, maybe on some stock holdings that you could pledge that you could then kind of secure some, some money against. I think that's what you're really going to see not the full value of the company. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, honestly, the court can even be informed a little bit by these settlements, right? What, what, what were these settlements at? They were at mm-hmm. about 50% of their, their right. cash and cash. Okay, frittles, we'll cash right? Sure, cash, so yeah. is that, you know, is that maybe some that yeah. he can consider? These are yeah. all on the table for the court to, again, he's going to balance these interests against one another to try to make the playing field as fair as possible so that the defendants who want to appeal still have a reason to appeal without them being wiped away because the bond amount is so high, it's just going to wipe them out. Right. So,
0: all right. So let's talk about appeal and settlement. Like there's, there's obviously two camps on this. Keith and I are very much in the settlement camp. We'll explain in a minute, but let's go down that road. Appeal could take Forever, I'm making that up, but like it's years and years and years. Like it could be years and years and years. But then they're spending a ton of money on lawyers. Am I so, correct? <clears throat> let's start there. Just let's okay. do a quick analysis on that, and then I want to talk about settlement and why. Sure.
2: Yeah. Okay. So appeal. Remember a couple things when you do an appeal of a case. What you're appealing are things the judge did. You do not get to appeal the facts that the jury determined. Okay. Now you can appeal that the jury was inappropriate in making a decision because they they didn't have enough facts in front of them or the facts that they decided didn't support the judgment that they or the verdict that they rendered. And I think that's the argument that NAR is going to go down. Um, but it, you're really looking at things or errors that the court made that may have affected the outcome. In this case, what we're talking about are a couple things the idea that it's a per se standard versus rule of reason. We talked a lot about that in the previous Mm -hmm. episode. Go ahead and and listen to that uh, if you want what those levels are. Um, another one that I think has some legs for NAR and that is, uh, there's a case called Illinois brick and it stands for the proposition in antitrust that you have to be a direct purchaser of services from one of the defendants. So one of the defendants has to be the person you interacted with to get these services now at the trial, NAR argued that the actual payment made to the buyer's agent was from the listing broker, not the seller. So as a matter of law, the seller can't be damaged because it would Hmm. be if anyone overpaid, it would be the listing broker now some challenges with that argument, are every single closing statement presented in the case had it on the seller's side, right? Seller paying Mm -hmm. both agents. Mm -hmm. I think there may have been some testimony from a couple of the corporate defendants that made reference to the quote, seller paying the buyer's agent, right? So again, remember this is all about weighing and balancing evidence, right? So there was evidence that the seller paid I think the best piece of evidence of why this is a hard one to win, you know, as a broker, if I'm the one who paid the buyer's agent, that means I should be booking inside of my company the full value that was received. And then I need to send 1099s out to everybody. Right. Or what I, you know, expensed as a cost with me paying them. So that's certainly possible. But is that how transactions look and actually function out in the real world? Probably not. I think NAR has a stronger argument uh, on the indirect purchaser issue on appeal. And they brought this up in their trial brief, I think, in a very good way so they can appeal on this ground, and that is, who did the plaintiffs buy services from? No one entered into a listing agreement with the National Association of Realtors. And no one entered into a real uh, a, a listing agreement with Keller Williams Corporate mm. or Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Corporate. They entered into relationships with individual licensees, kind of down the chain. So mm-hmm. where's your direct purchaser? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a that's a scenario that could have some legs and could help NAR, you know, win on the money aspect of this case. Now. That kind of dovetails us into the copycats, yeah. where they sued direct brokers in some of these copycats, and that gets rid of that argument, right? So it doesn't really solve the overall problem. It just
0: so let's come to that. I want to yeah. I want to put a pin in that for just a second. So NER appeals; they go through this process, and they try to make their case and win. And to be clear, just for full disclosure, Keith and I are still massive fans of NER winning these cases. <laughs> mm-hmm. about that. We yeah, all we, that would, we would be great. We all are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. NER wins all the cases, correct.
0: Here's the here this is I think is a tie a tie into this. Settlement is essentially, you know, this this other option. As we talked about in the previous pod, and you guys can go listen to this one. We're not going to go rehash it again. It's obvious that the plaintiffs have already they have interest in settling. They've already done it twice and all the lawyers and plaintiffs were in the same room from all the cases in order to do that. So again, go to episode whatever it is to 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 listen to that. What I what I find this is difficult right now, and this is a tie-in. The copycat lawsuits are happening. I want to cover those, but they're suing everybody else to get more people involved. I think strategy, and you tell me your lawyer, but it's to get more people to put pressure on potential settlement. They're suing everybody. At this point, not to mention that they have a you know precedence with the case. But what I what I worry about is that if NER doesn't settle, then all of these other companies start cutting deals like you know, Remax and Anywhere, and then NER doesn't have a membership to settle with. It's a bold statement, but I'm been direct I'm directly saying that intentionally because you know these large companies have been named they start cutting deals and if NER needs to get everybody together to do something they won't have it right because they could say well we've already settled it out you don't need to be part of NER settlement so am I on the right track here? Is a potential problem
2: that that is a potential impact with the broadening of the copycast that makes it more complicated there's no <laughs> question about it right settling three cases three seller cases which is what we had before this trial started is always going to be easier than settling five or six now Keep in mind with some copycats, a couple things. One, it's it's lawyers racing into their position (laughs) to get named to get a check. Okay. There are no, remember that with the Gibson case, which is the first one that was filed right after this verdict came out by the same plaintiff's attorney for a nationwide class. Right. What that means is, all of these other copycats, the members that they're suing for the, for damages us to sellers are already in the Gibson class. Right. So you have overarching cases that will, in all likelihood, be consolidated, and then it will be for the court and the plaintiff lawyers to fight out later the pecking order of lawyers. Right. So that's that's one aspect of these copycats. People are trying to get get their case in so I can be in that pecking order. This is the ambulance
0: uh, cool. chasing comment that people make. Is that a... <laughs>
2: I'm, a, I'm, <laughs> I'm a sorry. Lawyer, I so had to, that's right. I, find I, a I, me that I, goes, I, you know, if I, you've I, been injured... I get it. I'm lawyer, just... I'm rather you. Path, yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yes, but that's it, what's happening.
1: If there was a settlement, does that... Clean out all of these copycat lawsuits or not? It
2: can. Now, bec- it becomes a little more complicated though, now. Right. Because one of the other things that's happening, what you're starting to see is they're suing fresh new defendants. Mm-hmm. Why? Fresh Who in the right going to sue NAR? They're just subject to a $1.78 billion yeah, they're, judgment. They're, they're out of money, everything. right? They're out of money. Uh, yeah, they're not going to have anything by the time I come out of the courthouse. Right. Right. So now they're looking for fresh money. But could NAR effectuate a settlement that covers the whole country, covers all MLSs, associations, and all brokerage firms? Absolutely. They, they could do that. It just, it just You need a place where all of those various plaintiff attorneys are in the room and say, yes, I'm, I agree that this amount of money that comes from NAR and NAR can still be the funneling mechanism Mm -hmm. To do that, and and James, maybe this is, and I'm just talking off the top of my head without thinking, you just asked the question, right? If I put my mediator hat on to cover my bald head, um, (laughs) which is one of those things I used to do, I could see a scenario where this could encourage some of these companies to stay engaged with NAR, right? NAR fashions a settlement, and it covers real tours. period. Right, that's who's that's who that's, that's going to cover, yeah. Because that's going to be a decent sized number, right? Mm-hmm. I would think that, and and you know, brokers could help here by saying, "Hey, how much are you guys willing to pay?" Because if if this is truly what has happened, that that some sellers have been damaged by by a, a conspiracy of of the industry, where's the money? The money is not being held by NAR. The money's not being held like companies like yours or- It's not or being or held by brokers either, by the way.
0: Yeah, no. it's the agents. That's it's the, the irony of it. Agents agent. think the brokers have all the money. They don't. Look at no. your splits. It's individual so,
2: agents. So the mm-hmm. argument would be at some point to resolve the case, should individual agents participate in the contribution to that? I argue, and you guys know this when I have argued that it was a case that could be settled before, my argument is, yes, that if, if that's where the damaged money is sitting, then those individual agents should participate. And that would actually, I would argue, James, encourage people to stay with NAR mm-hmm. if it's under that umbrella that they receive the, um, you know, the releases and things necessary by contributing. And you spread that number out over 1.6 million realtors. It's actually not that that hard of a number to ingest if you spread the payment out over you know
0: three Time. or four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so I was I think I was making the statement. It's probably didn't articulate it very well, but if if everybody starts going directly to to you know the plaintiffs' lawyers and cuts their own deal, then that starts to degrade that ability for NER to do it, and it potentially could harm their their membership numbers even good. further. Yeah, in good. theory. Um, all right. So just to put a bow on that. So basically every
1: Settlement, for example, REMAX and anywhere and every copycat lawsuit only makes this more complicated and harder to settle for NAR, correct?
2: It, it does, but it's not impossible. And sure. it's still, in my opinion, a case that can be settled.
1: Yep.
2: <clears throat> but it, is, yep. It, it has more nuances to it. There's more plaintiff lawyers that have to be brought under the tent yep. to agree to things. So, um, but Those things can happen, right? Cases can get consolidated and put into the front of the same judge. The
1: benefit is it is also and you know, well, I'll spare everyone a lawyer joke, but the benefit to this is candidly what the lawyers care about is getting paid and defending their clients, right? But what the lawyers care about is getting paid. This is a way in which like this is the cleanest way, the simplest way for the plaintiff's attorneys to get paid and mm-hmm. to put, put all this to
2: bed. Correct. So I'm going to say the second part of that is correct, but okay. please don't go, don't dismiss the fact that plaintiff lawyers want to effectuate change.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yes. You know,
2: that's, I, it's a, it's a tripe that people say the lawyers only want the money. I can tell you as a plaintiff lawyer, I in doing construction defect litigation in yes. almost every case I ever had we took less money yeah. in fees than we had to because t- I wanted to make sure my client could fix the things that had to get fixed.
0: For sure. I guess I'm the- sort of the-
1: just accepting yeah. that change is going to happen, which I correct. shouldn't. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I shouldn't yeah. just surrender that point. Um, but in my
2: brain, like the changes are already coming.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so then it's really just figuring out what's the best way to
2: pay for this. You're correct. Once the changes happen, whether that's through this injunction process or NAR settles the Sitzer case and agrees to a rule change, so that the rule change is not in play in any of these other cases, mm-hmm. then yes, then then it's only about you know locking down the money situation and how do we solve that problem. Honestly, that's not hard to solve. It's right. expensive, but it's not hard. All yeah. right.
0: So I want to make sure we get a couple things answered while we got you here. So number one, are there gonna be more copycat lawsuits? Uh and I'm prefacing that with I keep hearing people and it's driving me completely bonkers, like in <laughs> California where they're like, We have good farms, we're protected. I'm like that has nothing <laughs> yeah, to do with, like, stop mm-hmm. with your nonsense. That has nothing to do with it. So can you, like, are there going to be more copycat lawsuits is my first question. Do you think we've seen the end of it?
2: <clears throat> I don't know that answer. Um, there As could a plaintiff's be, lawyer. But they're just going <laughs> to get consolidated into the existing cases, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that your form protects you. That's kind of cute, but that's not how conspiracies work. Um, and I think we've already demonstrated that. I was like, the form
0: know. in Missouri is very clearly laid out how things work and that didn't happen. So, yeah. Right. right.
2: I mean, it's cute <laughs> that the form says in 15 different places in big, bold letters, everything's negotiable. But that piece of evidence gets weighed against the evidence of a jury hearing how your agents are trained, and how mm-hmm. how the three agents I interviewed all came in and said, if you don't put the number I already pre-printed on your form as a, a offering compensation, no one will show your property. That's also evidence, right? Yeah. So yeah. you have these competing pieces of evidence. Um, and I think we've seen already how juries will react to the yeah. fact that, right. yeah, so great, there's a sentence on your form that says it's negotiable. But in, the reality is when three people stand in my living room, and tell me if I don't offer a certain number, people aren't going to show my house. That's also evidence,
0: right? Right. 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 And the jury right.
2: gets to pick which of those two they're going to go with.
0: Right. Okay. You so know? two. I want to make sure we get two questions in here, and I'm going to keep you held to the to the to the time on this, so we can get them done. Because so I want it. The first one is going to be about explaining the Batten cases. I want that to because people are asking questions around this okay. other this other case. So I want to spend like four minutes on that. Okay. And then I want to spend four minutes on what a structure, I want to end it with what I think is a positive, like what would a structure of a settlement Look okay. like okay. So let's right. start with the the Batten former leader cases. So right. you you
2: can tell James is not paying me on the clock because I would never do an explanation for four <laughs> minutes. If I, I know.
0: Didn't. I was about <laughs> to remind you that we're not on the clock. So um uh, yeah,
2: we'll see what we can do here. Yeah. Okay. The Batten cases. Sometimes the first Batten case was originally called Leader. It's a buy side claim. So these this is a whole different group. And the argument here is that the buyers are actually the ones that paid the commission. There is an argument here that, that this is true, right? That the buyers are the ones who came to escrow or the closing with a check. They're the ones who ended up paying the um, buy by. side commission. Sure. Yeah, They did not get to participate with the system that we have with the seller and a listing agent deciding how much is being offered to the buy side in a transaction. The buyers never get to negotiate that. And even if they do negotiate, the, the argument was what happens to the spread? Does the spread get held by buyer agents? And there's there are places where that's kind of occurs. So that's the buy side claim. Now it's a giant number because, and this is kind of ridiculous, they're arguing that it's it goes all the way back to 1996 because they're saying, hey, if I have a 30-year loan
1: <laughs>
2: and I paid an extra $15,000, over interest for 30 years, that's my damages. Now, we all know nobody pays their loan off in thirty years, right, these kind of things. But anyway, that's their damage number. So that's a different nuance, a different side of what's happening. Now, there's this new thing called a baton two, which is uh, they just updated their filing. They it's a very good filing. It's a good complaint. Um, They deal directly with the indirect purchaser challenge, which is what they have um, that I talked about earlier. Because the concept there is, d- it is the buyer a purchaser of services in that situation, right? So there's a lot of nuances on there, but it does add a layer of complexity to the extent that now we have to resolve the buy side commission and those lawyers as well. So that's definitely it's, makes is it more there some
0: Is there some precedence that this is a weak case in that the sellers, a jury just found that the sellers were the ones that were damaged? And I, I mean, I think, my yeah, only one I, that finds that yeah. strange- like so, so, one party open, that was damaged, not no,
2: that, that's exactly correct. And remember the Morell case that's in Northern right. Merlo, it's the same judge that has these baton cases. So, right. or at least baton one. So, she understands that she has to weigh those two issues against one another. So, that comes into play. I think there's also an argument of what do you do with buyers who signed a buyer rep agreement? They can't argue they didn't participate in negotiating it. That's part of the buyer rep agreement, right? right? So, So is your class, you know, only buyers who didn't sign a buyer rep agreement, right? So there's a lot of nuances there, but it definitely adds a layer of, again, additional complexity and an additional layer of people who have to be involved in the discussions of how are these cases going to resolve?
0: Well, if you can't, if you put a, if you do a mass settlement on the sell side, there's no money left to do the buy side. Like, I mean, is there, do they all?
2: There is, or you bring them into the same conversation and we say, here's how we're supporting the money.
0: Yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay. Was so, the initial settlements
1: for Remax and Anywhere? Did that include Nope.
2: Gotcha. Nope. That's sellers only. Yep. So Remax okay. and Anywhere can still get sued in in Batten on the concept of the buyers were damaged.
0: Yep. All right. Talk to us about what you think a settlement proposal might look like. Or, or I mean I know you're you're very involved in this industry and stuff. So like you're you know, what is it you think that would look like as a way to start the process?
2: So when you say settlement, do you want me to focus on injunction, adjunctive relief and what a rule looks like versus the sure. money? Sure.
0: Like, what do you, th- well, yeah, let's talk, let's talk more about how do we get this moving in the right direction? Let's just start with okay. that, like to to get us down this road. Where right. does this start and begin? So, so
2: I, I think the most important thing that we need to focus on as an industry and however that resolution can happen would be making sure that it is easy for buyers to receive quality and good representation and to mm-hmm. be able to to pay a, a meaningful market way you know rate that the buyer negotiates, okay. And the path I see for that is we can live perfectly fine in the multiple listing service without a formal offer of compensation or a unilateral offer of compensation in the MLS. You just get rid of the box, okay, um, where that's that's offered. Uh, I do think there is a high level of value in what I call concessions in price, right? A box that's just free form text. It's not an offer from the seller saying, I promise to pay this if you accept. It's simply a communication tool that says in this list price, I, the seller say, I'm willing to contribute 1% towards a loan buy-down or a rate buy-down or a a 2-1 buy-down or, I I agree to put a credit for $5,000 because the floors need to be replaced and I want you to pick the color of the carpet. And I think that's a better mechanism for me as a seller to communicate that to buyers as far as that opportunity or other kind of repairs. And I think one other thing they could do then would be say, hey, this price anticipates or includes me providing you with a you know. Uh, a certain percentage to contribute towards the payment of the buyer's fee, the buyer agent fee. Now, at the same time, I think we need some other rules. I think you need to get rid of 1616 uh, standard of practice in the code of ethics, which is the rule about, you know, you can't uh, use a, negotiated off, you know, uh, excuse me, the buyer's agent can't use an offer to purchase to modify an offer of compensation from the listing broker. Well, all of that is irrelevant. Now that's not in play anymore if you get rid of the offer, right? So just get rid of 1616. Um, And and you just make the negotiation for what the seller is going to contribute to pay for a buyer's fee just like you would any other negotiation in a transaction. I think there's one other important element that needs to be added, and that is we already have an article seven that says as an agent, as a realtor, you are not allowed to collect money from more than one person in a transaction. That's already our rule unless you have informed consent from your clients. And that's really what a buyer representation agreement is. right? Mm-hmm. buyer representation agreement says, hey, you know, Keith, if I represent you as your as your agent, Keith, you're gonna pay me a certain fee that I'm gonna charge you. And it goes on to say in that representation agreement, if when we make an offer, if I get money from anywhere else, from the seller, from the listing broker, from any of the source, I'm going to credit that as if you paid me and that lowers the amount you owe me. So Mm -hmm. we already accommodate that in the current system. What I would add is a standard of practice that says, the buyer, number one, buyer representation agreements need to be signed before you show a property, right? That should be Mm. an addition to standard practice nine. That should be an MLS rule. We should never let somebody into a house if they don't have a written representation agreement with a client that they're walking through. I argue that's already under article nine of the code of ethics, okay? People don't believe me on that though, but anyway. (laughs) So assuming that you are getting a buyer rep agreement signed before you ever show a property, we should have a standard practice seven uh, one that says that a that a realtor can only receive the amount in comp in commission or compensation that is in a written agreement. Right. The idea here is if if I'm representing Keith at two percent. Yes, I'm going to use numbers. And if someone wants to sue me, have at it. Um, <laughs> the and and right. James is offering more than that. The concept is, Keith, look, you're you're giving me 2%. That's what I'm getting. That's all I'm getting. Mm -hmm. James has has communicated in this concessions and price field that his price, his current list price, anticipates um, a, a higher amount. What, Keith, do you want to do with that? Let's talk about offer. We can lower the price by that differential.
1: Yeah. And it's still,
2: from James's perspective, that's still a full price (laughs) offer.
1: Right, right.
2: Right? Because Keith, you're the one who agreed to pay me the percentage that I'm getting. Sure. Um, Or do we want to take some of what is in that price and and apply it to a loan buy-down? Or do you want to apply it to some other kind of closing costs or credit?
1: Mm -hmm. Right,
2: Depending on what kind of loan you're getting in your lender. Right. So, So what it allows us to do as buyer agents is to assist the buyer in communicating and formulating an offer that takes advantage of whatever the seller has included in concessions. Again, whatever the concessions are, this this doesn't have to be limited to uh, comp. Yeah, to right. comp at all. Community. Uh, yeah. And and the good thing is too right now what you see is you see this offer of credits inside of agent comments. Mm -hmm. Right, which doesn't go out the door. Right, it doesn't go out to the public because it's in in a in a field that's tied with other other things that are more private. Mm -hmm. And so, by making it a separate field, we can send it out on IDX. We can put it in consumer make it public,
0: so it's transparent. Right,
2: very transparent. The buyer sees this concession amount and helps him formulate where to make an offer. So you're incentivizing the buyer not the buyer's agent and there's no chance that the buyer's agent would capture or or benefit from any differential because we would have rules and code of ethics that prevent that from happening that you can only get the compensation that is part of the written agreement you signed hmm. and that right. way any any differential any overage has to either go back to the seller or back to the buyer
0: right, not right. so the agent. so to summarize here we have decoupling We have a change in the field, I'm simplifying, but in the MLS where it's, you can offer anything you wanted to in that. That's what the plaintiffs are looking for anyway. Like there's this decoupling, there's still the ability for the seller to do whatever they want in order to incentivize a buyer or make offers to the buyer. We have a buyer broker agreement that's signed and I agree with you before property shown, makes complete sense. 12 states to some degree or another in that process. Currently it's Washington's now be 13 in January. Um,
2: so we know it works, by the way, for those people who right, argue right. against it, saying, well, that's yeah. not possible. Yeah. Guys, for, for,
0: it, it for exists. very
2: <laughs> long periods of times and tens of thousands of transactions, people <laughs> have lived with signing buyer rep agreements before showing a problem. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. OK. All right. So last parting words before we got to run and, and wrap up here. So, you you know, your. I guess, where do you give us a minute of where, do, where does this go over the next 30, 60 days? What do you just forecast? <sighs>
2: It's hard for me because I'm not involved in the, you know, setting policy. Pretty damn good crystal ball so far. Yeah. But my recommendation would be for NAR and maybe the remaining corporate defendants to negotiate what the rule is going to be. I think as an industry, that's by far the best thing they can do for us right now is let's stop the what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. Let's participate as industry professionals in what the solution is going to be as far as protecting consumers upping the transparency game making yeah. sure that buyers are involved in negotiating the buy side fee at the same time making sure we keep it easy to buy and sell a property so that buyers can get into homes yeah and yeah. and i think i'm most concerned that if people who are two, three, four steps away from the industry start writing those rules, <clears> that they may not appreciate the nuances and- The long tail right? Yeah. Right, the, the home buying opportunity. Um, and that's not good for buyers or sellers. No, so that's my that would yeah. be the thing. And the money thing can be worked out, right? Yeah. The, that, yeah. that, 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 that to me is a later thing. Focus on mm-hmm. the rules. We'll right, let the money out. thing sort of Get the rules okay. tied down.
0: Ed, Thanks for being here again. I just learned a lot, as usual. Uh, And, uh, you know, we'll have you... Yeah, we'll have you, have you on in a few weeks, but not on retainer. Yeah, not yeah. on retainer, but another um, invitation. Right.
1: Well, uh, well, and just
2: we some good news, right? Hopefully it'll be to yeah. comment on this cool new rule that we have and how to make yeah. it work and steps that we can take to implement a, a, a great solution in front of us. That's what I'm and, hoping yeah. I come back and talk to you guys about next.
1: And just yeah. in case anyone wants to listen to the first half of this conversation that we did, it was episode 27. Uh, you can go back and that was... Uh, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, but some of what yeah. we've referenced here, uh, we go into greater detail in that conversation. Great.
0: All right, my friend, we'll uh, we'll have you back soon enough, I'm sure. So Great. appreciate ya. Thanks for right. being guys you. Thanks. take care. Soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Trust us, it's the best thing any of us will accomplish today.